Well, we are finally nearing the end of Old Testament history, or rather, biblical history. Uh, First, we looked at Old Testament history, which uh, comprised a number of books from the creation all the way up to the return of the people from exile. And then we looked last week at the Gospels, uh, the first part of New Testament history, and then the last New Testament history book is the Acts of the Apostles, which we'll be considering today. So on page 1006 of the Bibles that are available to you, you have Acts chapter 1. And as has been our procedure, I'll read a representative portion of the book, and then we'll be referring to a number of sections of the book. Uh, Basically staying in Acts, I think I'll venture out of it one time, but if you have Acts open, we'll be jumping around in this book of Acts to try to get a grasp on the the message of the book of Acts. So I'll read Acts chapter 1, the first 11 verses. Hear the word of the Lord. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Obituaries have a monotonous sameness to them, don't they? They cover three points. They say that so-and-so was born, that so-and-so lived, and then there's a third point, that so-and-so died. Now, we could, if we were being um, sort of tragic, we could add another uh, point to that that happens over the next few generations. So-and-so unless he or she was some extraordinary personage of history, so-and-so was forgotten. So, born, lived, died, and except in a few rare cases, after some time, forgotten. Now, what we looked at last week was Jesus' story. And in Jesus' story, it's the same, but there's a detail that's added. And uh, the detail is significant. His obituary would go like this, that he was born, we saw that in the Gospels, we saw uh, that he lived, and we saw that he died, we saw that he was crucified, but the added detail is that he rose again bodily from the dead. So now the question is, will that added detail change the way the rest of the story goes? Will he be, like most people, forgotten? Or will that added detail of his rising from the dead make him someone to be remembered? So now we get to the Acts of the Apostles, the disciples, the followers of Jesus. And the question is, what would they do with this story? This story that Jesus was born, that he lived, that he died, and that he rose from the dead... What would they do with that story? After all, their master had just been crucified. So one reaction to uh, that opposition that Jesus received during his years of ministry would be to tuck in, to keep this message to themselves, and enjoy the benefits thereof. 
so this is the question that Acts of the Apostles records. What did they do? Did they share this message with others? And then the question is, if they shared it with others, which others? To which others was this message going to go? And Acts also ends leaving us with that same question. If this message has gotten to us, what are we going to do with that message? So we have, it's called the Acts of the Apostles. The title was added later, and it's an accurate title, but perhaps we could make it even more accurate. When we read the first verses of it, it says, in the first book. And so we should ask, wait a minute, this must be the second book. What was the first book? Well, we have good reason to believe that the first book was the Gospel of Luke, and that this is the continuation of the story after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Listen to the first verses of Luke, Luke chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And then we keep reading in Acts chapter 1, In the first book, O Theophilus... I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So we find that these two books meld together seamlessly. They're directed to the same person, Theophilus. They have the same style. And then we can do some detective work that is fascinating. When you go through Acts, you find that sometimes the writer of Acts is saying, they did this, they did that, they did this. And then sometimes he says, we did this, we went there, we did that. And so, if we do some detective work, we can put together Paul's letters, and we can put together the narrative of Acts and say, who was there to be able to say, we? And when we do that, we narrow it down to Luke one of his companions. So we have good reason to believe this was written by Luke and that he wrote the Gospel of Luke and this as the companion. Now, um, the title of the book, as I say, was added later, but maybe we could uh, make it a little more accurate because as he announces the theme, he says in the first book, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so what would we think the second book would be about? What Jesus continued to do and teach. And so uh, maybe what we could do is uh, have a title something like this. Uh, By the way, in verse 4, the first commandment was to wait. To wait in Jerusalem until they had the Holy Spirit, and then they would have what they needed to continue the ministry. So here's a proposed title. The Acts of the Risen and Ascended Lord Jesus Through His Disciples by the Power of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not going to catch on because it's way too long. Normally, we just call this book what? Acts. We don't even say the Acts of the Apostles. But it is the Acts of the Apostles, but really it's the Acts of the risen Lord who is acting through His Apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what's the overall structure of this book? Actually, Jesus gave us the overall structure. If you look at verse 8, it says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That is basically the table of contents. Chapters 1 to 7 are about Jerusalem. What happened with them being witnesses in Jerusalem? And the main character in that part of it is Peter. And then we have the middle section, uh, chapters 8 through 12, uh, and that is the gospel began to break out into Judea and Samaria. So now we're in phase two. And the main character is still Peter, but Paul is converted in the middle of this. And then, then he sort of fades into the background. And then we have the last section, the biggest section, and that is the end of the earth. Uh, and Paul gets all the way to the end of the earth by the end of this. And the end of the earth 
well, he was actually trying to get farther to the end of the earth. He had gotten as far as Rome, and he was trying to get even farther to Spain. And that's how the book ends. And the main character in that last section is Paul. But we can also notice something that Luke does, and uh, he gives us some other signals to identify seven smaller units. And I want to read these 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 concluding statements of each of these units and see if you can see something in common with these concluding statements. So we have in the first two chapters, we have the foundations of the church's mission, and it concludes with uh, chapter 2, verse 47, uh, the, the last part of which says this, And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. And that concludes the first section. Then the next section is the church in Jerusalem, chapters 3 through 6. And we get to uh, chapter 3, uh, chapter 6, verse 7. And the concluding statement of this section is this, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And then we have the next section, Into Judea, Samaria, and Syria... And uh, we have the concluding statement is in chapter 9, verse 31, which says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And then we have the next section, which is the first Gentile non-Jewish convert. And we have the concluding section, uh, the concluding statement is in chapter 12, verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And then the next section, the fifth section, Paul turns to the Gentiles, and he ministers among the Gentiles, turns away from the Jews, and turns towards the Gentiles. And we have the concluding section, or the concluding statement in chapter 16, verse 5. It says this, So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And then we have Paul going deeper into Gentile territory, in chapter 16, verse 6 to 19:20, And this is all in the notes that you have available. Uh, in chapter 19, verse 20, we have the concluding statement. And it says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail Mightily, And then we have the last section, which is all the way to Rome, and we read the very last verse of the gospel, or of the, the book of Acts, and it says that Paul, in verse 30, it says he lived there two whole years at his own expense, welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, what did all these statements have in common? What did they all say? The church was growing. The church is growing. So in all seven of the sections, they all conclude with the same idea. The Word of God multiplied. The church was growing. The church had peace. The the Gospel was going forth. So what's the book of Acts about? It's about the church growing. It's about the Gospel going forth. Now, there are many, many details. And by the way, this whole series, this whole series is to prepare you to read it for yourself. And to have uh, kind of sticky points in your mind so that when you're reading it, you can say, oh, now I see how this fits together with that. So all of this is preparation so that you can read it more productively for yourself. So none of these have been exhaustive. Today's not going to be exhaustive. We could pick out a number of different different uh, events of Acts, but I'm going to pick out six events in Acts in chronological order and talk about their significance at the time, and also their significance for us. So now we're going to back up. We have the overall structure, we have the overall purpose, the theme, and now we're going to go back and look at some of these events. The first event is that for which they were told to wait. The first instruction of Jesus was not go. The first instruction was wait, wait. For what were they waiting? They were waiting for the promise that He had given them. And the promise was, John baptized you with water, but I will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And we find that in chapter 2 of Acts. And it's the day of Pentecost. So now we're 50 days, Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover. And they're still in Jerusalem. 
and they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're, uh, they're praying, and they're waiting, and there are about 120 of them gathered. And this day, on the day of Pentecost, a Sunday, by the way, a Sunday, He rose on Sunday, He gave the, the Spirit on Sunday, and on this day, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon this group of disciples. And they went out where they were visible, and they began to speak in known languages that were unknown to them. So this was a miracle. They were known languages. And there were many people from all over the Roman Empire who had gone to worship there on the day of Pentecost. And they heard these Galileans, these Galileans speaking in the languages of their regions. And they said, what is going on here? And somebody said they must be drunk. Now, I've never known alcohol to teach languages like that. So it was a, it was an attempt to, to explain. And Peter, Peter very good naturedly got up in, in verse 14 and it said, standing with the eleven, lifted his men and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose. Because it's only the third hour of the day. So he's being kind of good-natured here. He's saying it's too early for that. They're not drunk. It's in the morning. And then he explains what happened. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days... It shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see vision, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So he interprets this. And he says, this is what Joel said. But in order to understand the significance of what Joel said, we need to back up even farther. We need to go all the way back to the book of Numbers. Because in the book of Numbers, in chapter 11, uh, there was a pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the elders. On the elders. And there were uh, elders... And Moses needed help, and Moses had the Holy Spirit, but Moses needed help, and so God poured out His Spirit on elders, and they prophesied. If we back up, it's 1126, uh, it's um, on page 133, if you want to turn to it. And in verse 26, it says, Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. By the way, what is prophecy? Another, that's a, a topic for a, another, a whole other sermon or lecture or series. But in general, prophecy is declaring the word of the Lord. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's speaking forth the word of the Lord. Sometimes it's predictive. And usually we use it that way in our minds. But most of the prophets were not predicting the future. Most of what they were saying, they were declaring the word of the Lord. And it says here that they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. So they're trying to keep this prophecy thing under control. They're trying to say only a few people, and they're not where they should be, these two guys. And Joshua was saying, Moses, stop them. Stop them from doing this. And Moses said, on the contrary, I want all of God's people to have the Spirit. I want all of God's people to have the ability to speak forth His Word. And then Joel said, that's going to happen one day. As we get to the end of the Old Testament, Joel was, it's, he's hard to date, but he might have been one of the, the last of the prophets. And he said that in the last days, in the last days that God would pour out His Spirit and listen to the to list the list of persons on whom He would pour out His Spirit, not just the 70 elders, 
It says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men, not just the elders, your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants, not just men, but women too. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And he says, that's what's going on here. He says, that's what's going on here. That's what you're hearing. This is the fulfillment of what Joel said would happen. And so, what is, what is the takeaway for us? The takeaway for us is that God has given us what we need in order to speak forth His Word and to be His witnesses. He said, In Acts chapter 1, you shall be my witnesses. After what? After you have received the Holy Spirit, you shall be my witnesses in Judea, um, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. Every Christian has the power to be a witness for Christ. Every Christian has been endued with the Holy Spirit and can speak forth the Word of God. When? In these last days. And he's indicated that we are in the last days and we have what we need to declare the word of the Lord. That's the first event. The first event. The second event seems kind of common. It seems kind of um, pedestrian, administrative uh, in comparison with the first event. The first event, miraculous and, and powerful and, and shocking. And the second event, there was a problem with some widow women not getting along. Because some were from a Hebraic background and some were from a Hellenistic, a Greek sort of background. And they were widows, and the church was taking care of them, by the way. And um, they were distributing food daily to these women who needed help. And um, some were thinking, you're favoring them. And so there was this sort of cultural difference. Uh, it seems like a kind of a, a letdown from Acts chapter 2, but it's interesting what they did there. Uh, the apostles said, we are not going to take care of this. We are not personally going to take care of this. They gave instructions. Um, They said in verse 3 of chapter 6, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They set them before the apostles, they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now these men were going to serve food to widows. That was their, their, their immediate calling. Now they went on and did other things, but that was their immediate calling to serve food to widows. But what was one of the qualifications they needed? They needed to be full of the Holy Spirit. And it says, this is the concluding verse of this section, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Why? Because not only the apostles were involved, the church was involved. And how could the whole church be involved in this mission? Not all of them were preaching. Not all of them were going to new lands. But the whole church was involved. Why? Because the Holy Spirit had been poured out on everyone. And so they needed everyone to participate. We think this was the beginning of the office of the deacon, the servant, who would take care of this sort of a daily sort of need so that those who have the calling to devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word are freed up from those administrative and very important tasks so that they might continue to press out. And that's exactly what we see here. So the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the election of the first deacons, and the takeaway for us is every Christian. Every Christian not only has the power but can and must participate in the work of the gospel, in whatever form God has called us to individually. Then, the next, the next um, event was persecution. 
So we had the pouring out of the Spirit, and then we get down to bickering widows, and now we're at persecution. And you might think about the distribution of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And you might think that's a bit imbalanced here, because we have seven whole chapters, and where are we still? We're still in Jerusalem. And that was a problem. And so, in chapter 8... Verse 1, by the way, in chapter 7, at the end of the Jerusalem time, there's the first martyr. Stephen is martyred. One of these deacons, he's martyred for his faith. And it says, and Saul approved of his execution. And it says, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Does that sound familiar? Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. I still don't know why the apostles weren't scattered. I don't know why they were able to stay in Jerusalem and the others were scattered. But it says, Devout men buried Stephen and made lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered, verse 4. Now who are these people who were scattered? These are the church people. These are not the apostles. These are the common church people. But what do they have? They have the Holy Spirit. And they have the calling to do whatever it takes to get the gospel to go out. Verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. Went about preaching the Word. How could they do that? They had the Holy Spirit. Back to chapter 2 of Acts. Well, what's the takeaway for us? The takeaway for us is that God will do whatever it takes to get His church going. God will do whatever it takes to get His church out there. Uh, and there has been a tendency of the church to kind of tuck in comfortably. And what God will do is He'll get us back out there. Uh, recently I read a book called, kind of a curious title for us, it was written in the middle of the last century, An Introduction to the Science of Missions. A title that's a little bit off-putting. I wish I had read this book before I was a missionary. I might have been a better missionary had I read this book first. It's an excellent book. But uh, I just want to read you his take on this. That God will do whatever it takes to get His church going. And he says this, and he, he reviews some of world history. He says, and still further, it is important to notice the means God used to move His reluctant church to missionary work. During the time of the apostles, he used the persecution in Jerusalem. And in later centuries, he employed various different means. He let the Roman Empire be flooded by diverse nations and thereby made the church again become active. He brought the entire north of Europe within the horizon and thereby stimulated missionary power. He let Islam penetrate Europe in Spain, Sicily, and the Balkans. And out of these crises, he again awoke the awareness of the necessity of preaching. He let the Mongolian hordes penetrate Eastern Europe and thereby made the church again conscious and vigilant. He drew America, Asia, and Africa within sight. Let colonial empires grow. Lay economic ties between various parts of the world and thereby opened the eyes of the church to its immeasurable task. At one time he used the fear... He used the fear of the wild hordes as an instrument to remind his church of his command. Then again, he utilized political and economic relationships to revitalize the forgotten calling. Throughout all ages, God has ever followed the church with his directions. The church can never escape his guidance. It is never left to itself. God repeatedly stands before the church with his challenge, with the possibility that he opens with the dangers that he brings. The church itself always succumbs to the desire to forget the world, to push it away as a fearful temptation, but God repeatedly brings the world, the restless world of nations, to the very gates of the church so that it can again remember the word that He once spoke on a mountain of Palestine. Interesting take on world history, isn't it? That what was world history about? World history is about getting us to do what He has called us to do. When we pull back into our safe corners, He thrusts the nations upon us and thrusts us out once again. And here we are in our day, and I'm not able to say, this is left uh, will be left to historians in a few hundred years to write about what happened at the beginning of the 2000s, but we see vast movements of peoples around the world. 
and we find that He has brought the nations to us. And might that be so that we might see, once again, our calling to all the nations to take this word to them. Well, another thing he did, so that's three, so the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the election of the first deacons, the first persecution of the church, and then, surprising, maybe the most surprising thing that happened in Acts, one of the chief persecutors of the church was named Saul, probably his Jewish name, also known by Paul, probably his Roman name. So God grabs a hold, uh, knocks to the ground this chief persecutor of the church and makes him into one of the primary preachers of the church, responsible for taking the gospel as far west as he could. And he was on the way to Damascus. He had letters from the authorities in Jerusalem. He wasn't content just to persecute in Jerusalem. He wanted to go to, to other lands where he heard the, this way was taking, taking root. And he wanted to, to drag men and women and, and put them in custody and try to force them to deny their faith. But along the way, he was going and a light shone around him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And so he was blinded. He went into the city. A disciple named Ananias met him. And he baptized him. And the scales fell from his eyes, and he began to try to meet with the Christians. They weren't real open to the idea, as you could understand, but there was a man named Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who took him by the hand and introduced him to the apostles and said, no, this is for real. As hard as this is to believe, this is for real. This man really is preaching the Word. And then we go to chapter 13, which is the beginning of the last section. And it says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was also called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now this is remarkable because here we have a a man being sent out by not the mother church, but by another church that had been started. It wasn't sent out by the Jerusalem church. So now this is a a daughter church, a church that had been uh, founded by those who were scattered and they got into Syria. And now this church is not seeing itself as the end of the road, but simply one more link in the chain and sending the best. Would you like to have Paul as one of your pastors? Could you imagine? The dream team. I mean, they, they name these guys here. On their pastoral staff, they have Paul and Barnabas. Can you imagine saying, let's take these two and send them out? But that's what the Holy Spirit impressed upon them, and they did that. They sent them out. Now, I jumped ahead. I jumped ahead just to finish the, the story of Paul. Uh, and, but what's the lesson of that? God can convert the hardest of his enemies into the greatest of his representatives. And Paul called himself, and he wasn't exaggerating, he called himself the worst of sinners. And he had an, he wasn't just being melodramatic, he had an objective reason to call himself the worst of sinners, and that was because he persecuted the church. And he said, but so that the grace of God might be manifested, He chose me, the worst of sinners, to declare His name to the nations. So what's the takeaway for us? The takeaway for us is that we ought not to despair of anyone. 
there is no case too hard for God. And we ought not to despair of ourselves either. And we ought not to say, but you don't know my past. You don't know how I've lived. You don't know what I've been like. But God knows, and God knew, and God called the worst and made Him one of those most amazing missionaries of all times. Now, backing up to chapter 10, we have the fifth event. And this is the conversion of Cornelius. In chapter 10, there is this dream sequence. Um, Peter has a vision, and then Cornelius, who lives in Caesarea. Cornelius was a Roman centurion, a Gentile, not a Jew, but he was a believer in the God of Israel. He was a God-fearing Gentile. And he had a vision, and Peter had a vision, and those visions coincided and they meant that Peter was going to go and to go to Cornelius' house and to enter into his house and to speak to them. And Peter, even when he got there, even by the time he got there, he didn't understand what he was doing. Because he says, okay, I, I, have this, I had this vision, and I'm here. What's going on? Peter, who stood up at, at Pentecost and preached the gospel, and who kept preaching the Gospels to the Jews, when he got into the Gentiles' house, he said, why Why do you want me here? And Cornelius said, well, I had a vision, and in this vision I was told that a man named Peter was going to tell me how to have life. And Peter said, oh, so that's what you want. And so he stood up, and he preached the Gospel to Gentiles. But the amazing thing that happened is that he didn't get to finish his sermon. Because as he was preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit fell upon Gentiles. Can you believe it? A non-Jew naming the name of Christ? This may sound strange to us. Because today we ask, a question that would have been very odd for the first Christians. We ask, can a Jewish person be a Christian? The, the, the question, original question was, can a non-Jewish person be a Christian? And at this point, not even Peter had figured out that the answer was a resounding yes. That they were not simply to go to the Jews in Jerusalem and the Jews in Judea and the Jews in Samaria and the Jews that were scattered in the diaspora to the ends of the earth. They were to go to the nations. And here we have Cornelius. And not only did Peter not get it at first, but he went back to Jerusalem and they said, Peter, gross! You went into the house of a Gentile? And he said, this is what happened. He told the story and then he said, He said, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And when they heard this, chapter 11, verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Shocking. Jesus had this planned all the time, but but the disciples didn't get it until now. And this was a new revelation that the Gospel was for everyone. And that is a message for us as well, isn't it? The Gospel is for everyone, even for those with whom we would normally not like to share a meal. Even even for those in whose houses we would not normally go. The Gospel is for everyone without distinction. And so to whom should we preach it? To everyone without distinction. The final thing. But it's the same sort of issue that caused this crisis in the church. The council in Jerusalem, the final final detail that we will consider, the council in Jerusalem, or the final event. Chapter 15. Well, some people, Jewish Christians, said, okay, we'll let these Gentiles in, but we really got to make them Jews first. And that's what we find in chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
So unless you become a Jew first, you can't become a Christian. And then Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. And then Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders. And so here we have the first council. And here they sit down and they hammer this out. And it's a, it's a fierce and it's a hot debate. And some were saying, no, we can't let this get out of control. God has commanded circumcision. He's chosen us as His people. And so we need to demand that they become one of us. And then Paul and Barnabas just got up and told stories about all the things that God was doing among those Gentiles and pouring out His Spirit on them even though they hadn't been circumcised yet. And they fell silent. And then one man got up, and this man was the brother of Jesus. It was James. And this man, as far as we know from from church history and church tradition, lived as a pious Jew his whole life. And he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. A pious, adherent, Christian Jew. And that was his context in Jerusalem. And so you might think that this man would would back the party that was saying, make them become Jews. Make sure the men are circumcised. But he got up and he said, with the words of the prophets, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. He was such a good pious Jew that he knew the Old Testament and he knew the prophecies that said that the nations were going to come in as well. And that's significant for us, isn't it? We didn't have to become Jewish in order to become Christians. So what's the takeaway for us? Not only is the gospel for everyone, the church is for everyone who will turn to Christ in repentance and faith. So now we have the question answered. The question of, did this change in Jesus' obituary change his memory as well? Would he be forgotten as someone who was born, lived, and died? No, with this change that he rose from the dead, he would not be forgotten. In fact, he would be remembered and known more and more because of what his original followers did with that message. They were so taken up with this message that they could do nothing other than declare it to others and take it as far as they could. And there is church tradition that says that the gospel went as far west as as Spain and maybe even what we call England and as far east as perhaps India and perhaps even China and down into Africa, into Egypt, into Ethiopia and then eventually began to spread up into northern Europe and across Russia. Amazing that these original followers took the gospel as far as they could. And you know what? Between then and now, countless Millions have taken it even farther. Do you know how I know that? We're here, folk. And we're very, very far from Jerusalem. We're not at the center of this thing. Where are we? We're in the end of the earth. And it has taken many, many people for the gospel to get this far. And then the question is, Now what? If it's gotten here, if it's gotten this far, now what? I I got to go once to Korea with a a missionary friend of mine. And there we were visiting a, a Korean man. We were actually going to another place for a meeting in Cambodia, but we stopped and the highlight of the trip was getting to stop in Korea. And a Korean man who had been a deacon at our church in Mexico, but he moved back to Korea, he was our host and our tour guide. And he met us there and he showed us all around. And Seoul, Korea is an amazing city. And I was I was flabbergasted at what I saw in Seoul. Two aspects of it. It's modernness. It is an amazing, clean, efficient, modern, huge city. 
And there are churches everywhere, all through Korea and all through Seoul. And I was asking myself, how did this happen? We're a Presbyterian church. You know where the biggest Presbyterian church in the world is? Korea. Not Scotland, not the United States. It's in Korea. And I asked myself, how did this happen? Well, one stop on the journey that my friend had planned was to the Foreign Missionary Cemetery. And we got to visit this cemetery. And when the those who run the cemetery uh, found out that we were missionaries, they needed to do some English translations, and so we helped them with that. But they treated us like royalty. They invited us to lunch. They gave us all these gifts. And among the gifts they gave were these etchings of some of the gravestones. And I want to read some of these etchings to you. William M. Baird, 1862 to 1931. His wife, Annie Adams Baird, 1864 to 1916. Presbyterian missionaries who pioneered in Pusan and Teku. I don't know if I'm pronouncing them those right, probably not. They founded Song Sil College in Pyongyang, where their bodies await the resurrection. More than conquerors through Him that loved us. Here's another one. In loving memory of, and I can't make out the name, Pioneer missionary in Songdo, Korea, beloved wife of J.W. Hurst of Seoul, born March 28, 1875 in Rockford, Illinois, USA, arrived in Korea March 4, 1901, married in Seoul March 11, 1907, having labored, loved, and suffered, she entered into glory triumphantly February 19, 1928. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Here's another one, Ruby Rachel Kendrick. It says on her tombstone, If I had a thousand lives to give, Korea should have them all. Ruby Rachel Kendrick, born January 28, 1883, died August 15, 1908. Do the math, 25 years old. William James Hall, pioneer medical missionary to Pyongyang, Korea, Canada, born Canada, 1860, died Korea, 1894, 34 years old. His wife, Rosetta, born USA, died USA at 86 years old. Their children, Sherwood, born in Korea, died in Canada, 98 years old. Edith Margaret, born USA, 1895, died in Korea, 1898. It looks like two sisters, Elizabeth Campbell Peters, died January 4th. 1906, age 33. He that loseth his life, says her tombstone. He that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Sister Eva, Eva Peter, Field Peters, asleep in Jesus, July 20th, 1932, 63 years of age. Walter Virgil Johnson, born August 30th, 1874, died March 18th, 1903, 29 years of age, missionary of the Presbyterian Church in the USA. It simply says, faithful unto death. Homer B. Hulbert, January 1863, August 1949, man of vision and friend of Korea. And then it says under that, I think this is my favorite, I would rather be buried in Korea than in Westminster Abbey. And he got his wish. And after walking through that cemetery and seeing all these gravestones and seeing many, many little gravestones as well, some of which had only one day because that was the same day of birth and death, and many of which did not even have names on them because they hadn't had time to name them. After I walked through that cemetery, I had the answer to my question of why Korea has so many churches and so many Christians. I had my answer to the question of of why there are churches on so many corners in Seoul and and why this 
this church that I attended was full of hundreds of young people pouring into church. What's the answer? Well, the basic answer is this. Somebody had to die. And somebody did die and rose from the dead some 2,000 years ago. But in addition to that, somebody else had to take that message and be so taken with that message that no cost was too high to take the gospel to the Korean people. And what's it going to take now? Same thing. Same thing. The first precondition is already satisfied. One man has died. And one man has risen from the dead. That's, that's the basic thing that it needs. And in addition to that, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all believers so that we can be witnesses. But now it falls to us. And we need to be so taken up with the Gospel that we will joyfully take it to our neighbors and to the nations with no cost being too high. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for Christ who died and rose again. And we thank You for the many who over the years, beginning with the original disciples, were faithful unto death. Many of them giving their lives so that the Gospel might go forth, so that the Bible might remain intact, and so that other nations might hear. We thank You, O God, that we who are largely Gentiles from a a land very, very far from Jerusalem, that the Gospel has gotten even to people like us and found us in our sin and rescued us. And we pray, O God, that we would not be the weak link, that we would not be asleep at the switch, but rather that which came to us in power, that it would go out with that same Holy Spirit power and that we would be Your witnesses wherever we might be and wherever You might send us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand for one more good word from God? May the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all, now and forevermore. Amen.